The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I'm absolutely delighted to bring to our listeners Bill Fries. He is the Science Policy Analyst for the Center for Food Safety. He has been with the Center for Food Safety for six years. Prior to that, he served the Safer Food, Safer Farms campaign at Friends of the Earth, where he authored numerous reports and comments to government agencies concerning the science and regulation of genetically engineered crops. And I'd like to just add that Bill played a key role in the discovery of the unapproved Starlink corn in the food supply back in 2000. And that was a very interesting occurrence because here we had our first case of some contamination and some concerns about allergies. Bill, welcome. Thanks, Melinda. I'm happy to be here. Well, I wanted to have you on the program because there's just so much momentum towards the acceptance of biotech foods and bioengineered crops. And I'd like for us to give our listeners a biotech 101. Let's talk about, you know, what they are, what the promises are, what the risks are, and what we see coming down the pike in terms of some new technology that may introduce some higher risks. So just for those of us who don't really have a good understanding of what a GMO or a genetically engineered crop is, what is it? Well, Melinda, it's basically a new technology that was developed in the 1980s and then first on a commercial basis in the mid-1990s. And it involves basically adding genes from various organisms into plants to give them new properties. And with genetic engineering, normally what is done is they take genes from soil bacteria and insert them into the plant for two basic reasons. One is to make the plants produce their own pesticides, and these are called BT crops. Corn and cotton are the two crops that have been engineered for this purpose, and it's to kill insect pests. And then the even more widespread application is to make crops resistant to herbicides so that you know, herbicides or weed killers that were formerly toxic to the crop can now be sprayed directly on it in higher quantities more often and throughout the season. You mentioned something really important here, if I could just interject. So the bioengineered crops, the messages I hear is that they mean that we'll use less herbicides, but I just heard you say that if they're engineered to be resistant to herbicides, we're actually spraying more herbicides on them. Yeah, that's correct. There's there's no doubt about that when you look at government data. And also common sense tells you this too. The most widespread herbicide-resistant crop by far is Monsanto's Roundup Ready varieties, which are engineered for resistance to Roundup. And the active ingredient of Roundup is glyphosate. Glyphosate is a very potent herbicide. It kills just about anything that's green. And so its use before these Roundup Ready crops were introduced was very limited. It could only really be used in orchards and then also early in the season for field crops to burn down weeds before the season actually got started because if you applied it to the crop itself, it would kill the crop. Now with Roundup Ready, you can apply 
the Roundup or the glyphosate through much of the crop season directly to the crop to kill nearby weeds. So we've had a huge increase in Roundup use with these Roundup-ready crops, corn, soybeans, cotton, canola, and sugar beets are the major ones. And that, in turn, has led to an epidemic of glyphosate-resistant weeds that maybe we can talk about in a bit. Yeah, I wanted to just mention that I have a report here in front of me from the U.S. Geological Service, and they say that overall agricultural use of glyphosate has increased from less than 11,000 tons in 92 to more than 88,000 tons in 2007, and that was before the Roundup Ready sugar beets were approved. So I'm assuming it's even greater today. And I think the thing that troubled me the most was that the chemist who was an author on this study, Paul Capel, he said, though glyphosate is the most widely used herbicide in the world, we know very little about its long-term effects to the environment. So I am concerned, and I'm hoping that you can address this issue, that we're told that these crops are safe. So we've got the genetic engineering part of the safety issue, but then we've also got this increased use of herbicide safety issue. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, and, you know, I think a number of years ago, 10 or 20 years ago, there was a a growing consensus that we needed to reduce pesticide use overall. And just as a footnote, a lot of people don't understand that pesticides encompass herbicides. And in fact, herbicides or weed-killing chemicals are by far the largest class of pesticides. They comprise about two-thirds of overall pesticide use, much more than, say, insecticides. So, you know, basically there's a consensus that, yeah, we need to reduce our dependence on pesticides because, you know, frankly, we don't have a good sense of how toxic any of them are, especially in combination as we encounter them in environment or as farmers encounter them in using various pesticides. Also, different chemicals can synergize and cause problems when each individual one might not have an impact. There are numerous, and, and then when there are diseases that seem to be linked to pesticides, it can be very difficult to make a 100% solid connection. And, of course, the pesticide companies use this to fend off regulation or you know, meaningful reductions in the use of these compounds. So the only really sensible strategy is to reduce overall pesticide use. Now, it's true, as you said, glyphosate is generally considered safer than than other pesticides, but there are actually a number of signs that it does cause real problems. For instance, there have been really good studies looking at Roundup and have shown that it's very toxic to frogs Hmm. uh, at very low levels, as low as a part per million. And what's interesting here is that it's the Roundup formulation, not the active ingredient glyphosate itself, that seems to be toxic. So the herbicides that are actually used in the field have many more additional components that are often called inert ingredients that can be toxic in their own right or increase the toxicity of the um, active ingredient. And EPA doesn't uh, have any serious testing at all for these additional ingredients. There are other issues with glyphosate, too. There there was a recent epidemiology study which suggested a possible link between exposure to glyphosate and multiple myeloma, which is a a serious cancer in farmers. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not certain connection, 
but it's a suggestive connection. And when you see all of the glyphosate that's being used today, it, it raises even more concerns. It is interesting that farmers are at higher risk for certain forms of cancer, and it's not because they're, well, I, other than skin cancer, because they're outside. There's really no other explanation than to look at some of the chemical exposures that they encounter on a, on a regular basis. I think there's, there's a lot to, to say for that, especially when you see that farmers overall have less cancer overall. Than, than the general population and less heart disease and are generally healthier. That makes the increase in incidence of certain cancers very striking, and there have been many studies linking these cancers to, to pesticides. So, yeah, it's, unfortunately we don't have uh, an EPA that is, that is looking out for our farmers or mm. really for the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was talking to a researcher at the University of Wisconsin, Warren Porter, and Dr. Porter said that glyphosate was a classified as an endocrine disruptor. Have you seen that as well? Yeah, I've seen studies suggesting that it could also disrupt the endocrine system. There have been studies done in Argentina and that have been uh, yes, studies done on frogs suggesting, you know, endocrine disruption effects of glyphosate. Mm-hmm. I'm not an expert in that area, but, you know, again, when you're using so much of this this pesticide, and in the U.S. it's 180 to 185 million pounds wow. just in agriculture each year, then, you re- you know, you really have to wonder if, th- if that's a wise thing thing to do. Somebody's bottom line is enjoying those increased sales. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, I think, an interesting aspect of these herbicide-resistant crops, and that's the fact that both the crop seed and the associated herbicide are usually sold by the same company. And that's, you know, that's a result of these pesticide companies. Uh, people my age and older, think of, when they think of Monsanto or DuPont or Dow, we think chemical companies pesticide company, and yet over the past several decades, these these firms, these chemical companies have bought up seed firms until now they control a good part of our seed supply, and they've used this technology of genetic engineering mainly to create seeds that grow into crops that resist their herbicides so that they can profit twice. It's an unfortunate direction that our agriculture is taking, and Mm. uh, we really need to, to change course. I don't know if you were at Friends of the Earth when this particular report was published, but it's one that I use when I speak to groups. And the question on the cover of the the report is, who really benefits from genetically engineered crops? And I think that that is a very important question for all of us to be considering. Who really stands to gain here? You know, we have people, quote-unquote, experts, who come to university land-grant campuses and who tell us that we need genetic engineering for less pesticide use, even though you've just proven that false, for higher yields, easier farming, and this notion that we're going to feed the world. So how do we navigate those kinds of messages against the kinds of information that you've brought forth prior with the Friends of the Earth and then also with the Center for Food Safety? 
Well, I think it's, you know, partly a matter of, you know, educating yourselves and, you know, not listening or not believing in simplistic claims. I mean, as, as you say, the industry often says, oh, we have to have this technology to feed the world, and yet there's... These crops have nothing to do with, with feeding the world. First of all, almost all genetically engineered crops are corn and soybeans. And if you look at what those crops are used for these days, it's mainly to feed livestock in rich nations, the United States, Europe, and Japan, or to feed automobiles by transforming the corn into ethanol, for instance. 40% of U.S. corn goes to make ethanol now. Um, and it's just a drop in the bucket of our transportation fuel needs. So, you know, we're, we're not feeding the world with corn and soybeans. And the genetically engineered varieties, as we've said, only have two traits. Neither of these traits have anything to do with increasing yield, so we're not getting more production. It's all about, with the herbicide-resistant crops, making weed control somewhat easier and faster and with less labor. And what that leads to is the ability of already big farmers to become bigger without adding additional labor. And from my perspective, that's not, that's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, we already have, you know, many smaller farmers going out of business. They don't have the economies of scale and they get swallowed up by their bigger neighbors. And these herbicide resistant crops help that process. They facilitate that process, even though they don't drive it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's what's really going on here. Uh, we also see that in South America, which is the only other, you know, region of the world where these crops are really, have been heavily adopted. And in Argentina and Brazil, you have some of the largest soybean plantations in the world, bigger than in the United States even. And They've adopted these herbicide-resistant soybeans very, you know, widely. And again, it's because of the reduced labor. But again, they don't feed the world, don't increase yield, don't have enhanced nutrition. You know, there's really no humanitarian benefit from these crops, and people need to understand that. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Bill Fries. He's a science policy analyst for the Center for Food Safety, and his work involves assessments of the failed promise of GE crops, industrial biotechnology, and cost-effective alternatives to genetic engineering. Bill, earlier we mentioned something that has become a problem with these Roundup-ready crops, and that is that we have weed resistance. And I should mention that we also have pest resistance to the BT technology, but let's start off with the Roundup-ready crops because now we're looking at building in or stacking up more resistance traits to even more powerful herbicides and we can't help but think that there will be public health consequences related to that. Yeah, the the Roundup Ready crops were introduced in 1996 and were adopted very widely, especially soybeans and cotton. And what they do is they, you know, encourage farmers to use just one weed control method, and that's Roundup, spraying Roundup, as they say, over the top or post-emergence, that is, to the growing plant. And... What we've seen is, well, first of all, in the 20 years or so from the mid-70s to the mid-90s that Roundup was used before these Roundup Ready crops, there weren't any resistant weed populations. None had evolved. 
And then in the year 2000, we began seeing really epidemic emergence of resistant weeds. And the weeds evolve resistance to Roundup just in the same way that bacteria evolve resistance to overused antibiotics. You keep throwing the same chemical at the weeds, and they find a way around it. And they've done so in a mass, on a massive scale uh, with Roundup. We have at least 15 or 20 million acres of cropland infested with glyphosate-resistant weeds. And that, in turn, leads to increased rates of glyphosate, more applications, and also increasingly additional herbicides mixed in so that not only glyphosate but several other herbicides are used, often more toxic herbicides. Another response that farmers have is to use tillage to control these weeds, and that means running a tiller through the field to uproot the weeds. This increases soil erosion, and so that's not a good thing. All of these things also cost farmers a lot more money. So it's really it's bad for the environment, public health. It's bad for our soil, losing more soil. And it's bad for farmers, bottom line, in terms it, of increasing weed control costs. It's interesting you mentioned the tilling because that was one of the promises with the GE crops, if I'm not mistaken, that you know we wouldn't have to till as much if we used the genetically engineered crops. Yeah, there's a big misinformation campaign on that, unfortunately. It, when you really look at the USDA data on this, conservation tillage, that is these tillage practices where you minimize the use of tillage or don't till at all, they were adopted in the two decades before Roundup Ready crops were introduced, and mainly because we had progressive farm bills which provided financial incentives to farmers to adopt these methods. Roundup Ready crops have not increased no-till or conservation tillage. And in fact, it's pretty much a lot, soil erosion is pretty much leveled out in the, the decade that Roundup Ready crops have been introduced. So, and as I said, with the resistant weeds that have been fostered by Roundup Ready crops, now we're seeing more tillage, hmm. uh, especially in the south in cotton, but also to some extent in soybeans. So much for the labor-saving idea behind this. We're going to have to get out there and do a lot more weeding. Well, yeah, actually, that's a good point. In certain severe cases of glyphosate-resistant weeds, we've seen weeding crews go out. And, you know, in, this is especially true in cotton in Georgia and Arkansas and other states on hundreds of thousands of acres weeded by hand because these weeds uh, these resistant weeds grow so fast that farmers can't get to them quickly enough, and they soon get out of control to the point where they tower over the crop, and the only way to get rid of them is through hoeing. Or using these new promised crops that are going to be resistant to 2,4-D, which is very troubling to me. I can just give you a little history, short history, that 2,4-D is one of the two ingredients that was used in Agent Orange. And my first job when I came to Columbia, Missouri, was a clinical dietitian at the Veterans Hospital. And at the time, veterans were coming in who had been exposed to Agent Orange with health problems, of course. And now we've got this new variety of genetically engineered crop that's going to permit the spraying of one of those 
active ingredients in Agent Orange. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the irony just keeps going, but I saw the name of one of these crops is going to be Enlist. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that, Melinda. It's, <laughs> it sounds very military. Yeah, that's true. And and the link to the, the poor veterans' exposures uh, in the field, we know from past experience that this is not a chemical we want to be applying to the earth and near people. Yeah, that's that's I think that's very true. And I and it's it's interesting. Dow is the developer of this 2,4-D resistant corn and soybeans and cotton and of course they also make 2,4-D. They've explicitly said, you know, the reason for this crop is glyphosate resistant weeds. Mm-hmm. And so People have looked at this, you know, scientists have looked at the potential increase in 2,4-D use, and we're, we're talking a many-fold increase. I mean, it could be as much as a 30-fold increase in 2,4-D use on corn by the year 2019 if this crop is widely adopted. Now, 2,4-D is not widely used on corn at present, but it's a lot of this stuff is going to be sprayed. A lot of people have noted, and it's true, that the other component of Agent Orange was more toxic, and that's 2,4,5-T. And yet, still, today, we know that dioxin, which is, you know, the presumed toxic component of 2,4,5-T, we know that dioxin is still found in 2,4-D batches. Uh And there have been real good epidemiology studies showing that 2,4-D exposure farmers is linked to higher rates of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a cancer of the immune system. Mm-hmm. It kills about 30% of those who, who contract it. It's a very serious disease. And, you know, again, farmers who are generally healthier and have less cancer overall than the general population, they have higher rates of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that's likely related to, to this 2,4-D use. And I would just like to mention that I am ashamed to say that that technology was researched at the University of Missouri with promises that this was going to be the next answer to these resistant species. And there's actually a news release that I have here on my desk that the New York Times reported there were 10 resistant species in at least 22 states infesting millions of acres of farmland and then using a massive genetic database and a bioinformatic approach, Dow AgroSciences researchers have now been working on this 2,4-D resistance trait with a researcher at the University of Missouri. And I think, honestly, as a dietitian and someone who's worked in public health, I think it is shameful that we are not cross-pollinating our medical community with our agricultural community and saying, wait a second, what are all the consequences that we're going to see here? You know, I'd like to know your opinion about how other farmers are thinking about this because I have a friend who farms in uh, North Dakota who has an organic seed business, and she's afraid that the 2,4-D drift is going to destroy her seed business. There's the Save Our Crops organization where farmers are saying, we can't get any of this drift on our tomatoes. It'll kill our other crops. What is the thinking here, Bill? Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. I mean, 2,4-D is one of the oldest herbicides. It was developed in the 1940s and was originally planned for use in World War II until the um, atomic bombs kind of preempted that strategy. Um, 
2,4-D was going to be used to destroy the rice crops in Japan. Uh, and then, of course, it was used in Vietnam, as you said, with Agent Orange. And since the 1940s and 50s, it's been used widely in the United States. And throughout the time it's been used, there have been, you know, many, many complaints from growers of other crops uh, of drift injury. Vineyards, grapes are incredibly sensitive, and it's a standard, you know, theme throughout the use, you know, of this herbicide the, of damage to vineyards. And in fact, in Iowa, there used to be a fair number of vineyards, and one of the factors that shut many of them down was the massive use of 2,4-D and its drift. Hmm. Um, it's it's a very volatile chemical, so it can easily drift either on the wind as it's being applied. Or once it's settled, it can then volatilize and drift. So it's the number one culprit in crop injury complaints related to herbicide drift, and it has been for many years. And what's really scary is we're going to be using many-fold more, many times more of this chemical if these crops are introduced. So I, you know, I really understand the opposition from farmers. I think your friend in North Dakota is, is you know, it's very justified for her to be concerned about this. Uh, 2,4-D will kill you know, grapes, tomatoes, any broadleaf crop. It's only the grassy crops, the cereal crops like corn and sorghum and barley that have a certain tolerance to it. Other crops, almost all vegetables and fruits are at risk. Bill, we have just a couple of minutes, so I want to give you a chance to say anything that I may have neglected to ask about this issue. Well, I think it's important to realize that the very, you know, rationale for this crop is that it will, quote-unquote, solve the glyphosate-resistant weed problem, but it's it's very clear already. There have already been scientific studies suggesting that we're going to have a massive increase in weeds that are resistant to 2,4-D, just as we did with uh, glyphosate when random pretty crops were introduced. And also, I'd like to make it clear, it's not just these 2,4-D crops. There are dozens more herbicide-resistant crops being worked on. It's by far the biggest research and development focus of the biotechnology companies. Monsanto has crops resistant to dicamba, which is a very close chemical relative of 2,4-D. Bayer, BASF, Syngenta, DuPont, all the companies are working on this. And it's collectively... It's really about to launch American agriculture into a new era of much increased, you know, dependence on herbicides unless we get busy and, and stop these crops. So I would encourage your, your listeners to, to visit our website. This is one of the issues that we're putting a lot of energy in. We're at www.centerforfoodsafety.org and you can see what we're up to. We have action alerts for folks and information. Yeah, I agree. I think that your website, centerforfoodsafety.org, is an excellent resource for action alerts, being comfortable in calling representatives and letting them know how you feel. I think that our food supply and our public health is truly at stake, and it is a pivotal moment in American agriculture. And I'd also like to welcome our listeners to email me at foodsleuth at gmail.com if they are interested in receiving a 2,4-D health summary that was put together by Gina Solomon, who's a physician with a master's in public health, uh, senior scientist at the Natural Resources Defense Council. I don't know if you have a link to that study as well, Bill. It's linked to in, in a 
recent press release we did. And, yeah, it's a very good letter. She's a very good scientist. Great. All right. Well, thank you. I want to thank Bill Fries. He's been our guest, and he's been talking to us about genetic engineering. And he is a senior policy analyst at the Center for Food Safety. In closing, I would like to thank our listeners for joining us. I would like to thank Bill for being my guest. And I would like to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you for your work, Bill. Well, thanks for having me on, Melinda.